Thank you, choir, for that wonderful reminder of the amazing grace of God that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We should sing that more than we do. And so thank you for that reminder of how marvelous it is that Jesus looks beyond our faults and sees our need. So turn in your Bibles today, please, to Hebrews chapter 12. We're in the series, The Race, What's It All For? This is part three, Running with Discipline. And my sources include Ray and Ann Ortland's book, You Don't Have to Quit, Bill Glass's book, Plan to Win, John Piper's book, Future Grace, and a commentary by Edgar Ed Andrews, Edgar Andrews, A Glorious High Throne, on Hebrews from the Wellwind Commentary series. I will say before we read the scripture that our church needs to run with discipline in terms of our campaign enlarging our vision. Enlarging our vision ends today. After three years, we are now at the conclusion of the three-year campaign, so we're out of the campaign after today. Do we still have debt? Oh, yes, we still have a lot of debt. Um, a lot of debt, and so, but debt's okay if you can manage it, and we are managing it fine, so it's not a concern. But I do ask that even though we're out of the three-year uh, campaign, I would ask that you consider continuing to give so that we might retire that debt. If you came on Wednesday night, you know we, we have a problem. We, we've got a space problem. Um, eventually, we're going to have to solve that problem. But for now, the, co- the goal is to retire that debt. So pray with me as a church that we will continue with our eyes on that goal of, of finishing out uh, enlarging our vision well, and I, I know that we'll get there. The Lord has provided so wonderfully for us through the years. You, you look at the things that the Lord has done here, facility-wise, it's just amazing the things that uh, has, has occurred. So join with me in praying that the Lord will always watch over us in terms of our financial management, as he always does. So look with me at Hebrews 12. I hope you'll take an outline. The outline is pretty detailed today and uh, great to follow along there. Hebrews 12, starting at verse 1. Please stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. Hebrews 12:1. Hear the word of God. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders... And the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son. It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. 
For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, in this race that is long, we need your grace. And so we pray for abundant grace, amazing grace to be known in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for your great love for us. That you look beyond our faults, our sins, and see our need. And so I pray that you would touch our hearts today with your love and speak to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. In the 20th century, Winston Churchill, the late great prime minister of Great Britain, was called, and rightly so, the speaker of the century. Few who heard his eloquent speeches would disagree. Still fewer would suspect that he was anything but a natural. The truth is, Churchill had a distracting lisp, which made him the butt of many jokes and resulted in his inability to be spontaneous in public speaking. So, to compensate, Churchill became famous for his speeches and for his seemingly impromptu remarks. Actually, Churchill not only wrote everything out and practiced it, he also even choreographed the pauses and even the pretended fumblings for the right phrase. The margins of his manuscripts carried notes anticipating the cheers and the hear-hears and the long cheers and even the standing ovations. So having done this, Churchill practiced tirelessly in front of mirrors fashioning his gestures and even his facial expressions. Now, you have to remember, Churchill was a word merchant, a master of the English language. Numerous people tried to take him on at times to debate the master, only to later regret it. The great playwright George Bernard Shaw, on the occasion of the opening of one of his plays, sent this invitation to Churchill. Dear Mr. Prime Minister, here are two complimentary tickets to the opening night of my new play. One ticket is for you and the other for a friend, if you have one. (laughs) Churchill sent back an immediate response. Dear Mr. Shaw, thank you for your invitation and generous gift of tickets for your new play. Unfortunately, my schedule prohibits my attending opening night. However, I shall surely be in attendance on the second night, if there is one. One writer said, Winston Churchill spent the best years of his life writing impromptu speeches. I like that. A natural, maybe, but if anything, he was a naturally disciplined, hardworking man. Someone once said that the world is filled with wide-eyed, idealistic starters, but painfully lacking in determined finishers. So why is it that so many people do so well in the starting blocks, so to speak, but sort of lose their edge, spiritually speaking, as the race continues? They quit before they ever get to the finish line. Likewise, in this race that we're running called the Christian life, there's a goal. And if you're following in your outline, the goal is to finish the race. To finish the race. Verse 1 says... Run with perseverance the race marked out for us. 
And as believers in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, we have a race that's been marked out for us. What a privilege it is for us to run that race that's been marked out for us. But it's not our goal to start the race and to lead in the race somehow. It's our goal to finish the race. And a motivation is those who ran before us. Verse 1 says, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Who are those witnesses? We'll talk about that in a moment. And then there's a problem. The problem is the things that so easily trip us up. Trip us up, get in the way. Everything that hinders, verse 1 says, and the sin that so easily entangles. What does the writer of our text tell us to do in the face of this problem? He tells us to throw off everything that hinders us in the race. So the question is, what is it that's hindering you from making progress in this race that we're running for Christ? Sometimes we call these hindrances, these entanglements, bad habits. All of us have these. All of us have them. Some good, some bad. The ones that you're, you say are good, you'd like to keep those. The ones that you don't like, you want to get rid of those. Those are the bad ones. See if any of these promises sound familiar. That's my last hot fudge Sunday ever. I'll never criticize anyone ever again. I'll never smoke another cigarette as long as I live. I'm finished with soap operas. I'll never take another drink. That's the last time I'll ever lose my temper. Sound familiar? So what are you supposed to do in the face of these kind of bad habits, hindrances, entanglements? Before I go any further, let me say this to you. A bad habit is not necessarily a sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, the Apostle Paul is kind of debating with the church at Corinth because they were doing a lot of things that were not permissible, not good for them, and yet they did them anyway. And so he writes in chapter 6, verse 12 of 1 Corinthians, he puts it in quotations, everything is permissible for me, and that's because that's what the Corinthians said. Everything is permissible for me, and then he wrote, but not everything is beneficial and then the second part, everything is permissible for me. He quotes them again. And then he says, but I will not be mastered by anything. So what's he saying? He's kind of saying what I heard a Christian nutritionist say long ago. He said you don't have to live by the dietary code of the Bible or the Old Testament, specifically maybe Leviticus, uh, since we're in the New Covenant. We're not under the Old Covenant. Uh, those ceremonial laws of the Old Testament have been fulfilled in Christ. He said, so to live, to refuse to live by the dietary code of the Old Testament of the Bible, it won't keep you out of heaven. It just might ensure that you get there sooner. What the Apostle Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 6 is, you're right, as a Christian, you're free to do basically anything you want to do, as long as Scripture does not clearly forbid it. At the same time, even though you're free to do anything you want, not all the things that you want to do are profitable for you or beneficial to you as an individual. In fact, some of the entanglements, those gray areas of life might be downright destructive for you and me as we attempt to make progress in the Christian life. 
So let's define a bad habit. Anything you do which controls you, that is not profitable for you, to live in a way that honors God. I'll say it again. A bad habit is anything you do which controls you, that is not profitable for you, to live in a way that honors God. So tell me, can you think of anything in your life right now that fits that description? For example, the Bible never says, don't eat moon pies. And I'm a huge fan of moon pies. I have some in my golf bag, just in case the urge arises. The Bible doesn't say, don't drink alcohol. But these are examples of the kind of habits that have the potential to control us and in the extreme can master us. And in such a way, such habits might constitute bad habits. Here's what the Bible says real freedom is all about. Real freedom is your ability to choose to live a life that honors God within the protective guidelines that God has made for your life. And so those those things in Scripture that God says you should not do, He's not trying to remove your fun from your life. He's trying to protect you. He's putting protective guidelines in your life saying, if you keep away from these things, your life will be better. So what that means is God calls you and I as believers in Jesus Christ to live as disciplined, responsible people conforming our behavior to his behavior. Which means, in short, anything that slows you down from making spiritual progress needs to be dropped. Bottom line, bad habits need to be and can be, by the grace of God, broken. The question is how. How do you break bad habits? Our, uh, our text is very clear about how to do that. And it involves discipline. So let's look at four lessons today. And the first is the breaking of a bad habit begins with a desire. It begins with a desire. There must be a desire to change. And a good question is, where does this desire, this motivation to change, come from? Well, sometimes it comes from other people, and sometimes other people, however well-meaning, can only make it worse. But ever so often, that inner motivation goes back to someone who's no longer around. And so listen again to verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and so who are those people? Well, you have to look to the previous chapter. The context says it's the heroes, the men and women of Hebrews 11. Those heroes of the faith, those are the ones that inspire us, motivate us. But I would say those witnesses don't have to be just those from the scripture, but could be someone very important in your life. That their life still is an example to you, even though they're among those clouds of witnesses. And I would say my grandmother's one of those. My grandmother and I sat together in church as a child. And though I didn't get a whole lot out of church growing up, I got a lot out of my grandmother. I was blessed to live right next door to her. She was my primary babysitter. And my best friend in a lot of ways. She was so good to me and my brother. My mom and dad were great dancers. So they went out a lot on Friday night, Saturday night. So I had a real privilege in having my grandmother around me as a tremendous example. And so as we think about the the people that motivate us, I want you to think about those people 
those witnesses that surround us. The scripture talks about those. And the Living Bible actually says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it says it this way in the Living Bible. We have such a huge crowd of men and women of faith watching us from the grandstands. And so, you know, I've, I've had people say this a lot that, you know, people in heaven are watching you and what you do and so forth. I, w- I want you to think about that for a moment. Now, it makes us feel good to think that, that, you know, my grandmother's watching me and, and so forth. But come on. It's a little bit awkward to think about my grandmother watching everything I do. Come on. There's no way. That's just a little bit odd. Um, Don't assume that the faithful dead are watching you. Don't assume that, because I don't think that's what the scripture is saying. I do think it's saying they serve as great examples for us, and we should look to them and all the things they taught us. Okay? I think that's the point that the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across. But the Father and the Son are definitely watching us. The Father and the Son are definitely watching everything we do. And we need to remember that. But you know what? I need some encouragement that comes beyond just those great heroes of the faith. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14 says, For Christ's love compels us. And so the motivation that I receive comes from the Holy Spirit through Jesus. So in saying that the love of Christ compels us, Paul is saying that there is a desire that is greater than the desire to please self. And there is a desire that is greater than trying to please other people. And that desire is the desire to please the one who gave his life for you. That's the greatest desire in the world. The breaking of any bad habit begins with a desire. I want to put this aside. I want to stop living like this. I want to do my life differently. That desire is a wonderful beginning, but that's not the end. Secondly, if you're to break a bad habit, you have to decide to change your behavior. So it's so easy to say when you're when you're talking about a bad habit. Well, I I know I ought to work on that, but that's not the same as saying this is it. I've made a decision. I'm going to make a change. Jonathan Edwards was the great preacher of Massachusetts, the 18th century revivalist, who was incredible. I mean, he wrote that sermon that everybody's familiar with, or at least you you might be, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And that's what he's known for, is that sermon. But there's so much more to Jonathan Edwards, probably one of the greatest minds of that century. And he sat down at age 17, and he wrote down 21 resolutions by which he would live his life. He added to this list until by his death, he had 70, 70 resolutions. He put this at the top of his list. Quote, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help. I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions. Remember to read over these resolutions once a week. End of quote. So Edwards didn't casually make a a New Year's resolution with an expectation of eventually breaking them like a lot of times we do. Each week, he did a self-check on himself. He regularly summed up how he was doing, and he sought God's help in the process. 
So to resolve, to make a decision, is not so much a decision to stop doing something as it is a decision to start pleasing God. I mean, we usually think in terms of success versus failure. We say things like, I'm just not having much success in attempting to control my temper. Maybe you haven't made a decision to change. And if your habit is doing damage to yourself or even to those you love, then maybe you need to go one step further. You need to hate your sin. The prophet Amos in the Old Testament, he said this, seek good, not evil. That's Amos chapter 5, verse 14. Seek good, not evil. Then Amos takes it one step further in the next verse. Amos 5, 15. Hate evil, he says, love good. That sounds very much like what the Apostle Paul said to the Romans when he said, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And so the only way to truly make a decision to change your behavior is to hate what is evil in your life, to hate that bad habit and what it's doing to your life. And in fact, if that bad habit is crossed over the proverbial line, the thin line from a bad habit to sin, then we're no longer talking about success versus failure. Now we're talking about obedience to God versus disobedience. For example, it's one thing to say, I really have a hard time controlling my temper. It's another thing altogether to say, I'm disobeying my God when I use that kind of language. Big difference. Hope you see the difference. How are you going to rid yourself of a debilitating habit? You're going to have to make a decision to change, to hate the habit, and then do what our text encourages you to do. Look at verse 2. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And that just reminds us the only way you're ever going to change your life for the better is to fix your eyes on Jesus because he is your only hope of change. The gospel is not something that we just need to be saved. We need the gospel to continually be growing in, our gra- in the grace of God in our spiritual life. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. In other words, we all are tempted in the same sort of ways. And God is faithful, it says. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. And what is that way out? Jesus. Jesus Christ is the way out. Commentators have given their opinion as to what the way out is. I'm convinced, as many other commentators are, that's the way out. Jesus is our way out. And so our text says in verse 3, consider him. When you're struggling in sin, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful people so that you won't grow weary and lose heart in your battle against temptation. So it begins with a desire to change. You have to make a decision to change. Then thirdly, in order to change your behavior, you must prepare for discipline. And there's the word. In other words, it's not going to be easy to change because no one likes to change. No one likes discipline. But if you're going to accomplish your goal, which if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your goal is not only to finish the race, but to finish how? To finish well, which is going to take discipline. And discipline is not fun, at least at first. Our text says that discipline is part and parcel of the Christian life. So listen to verses 4 through 7 again. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. 
And have you forgotten completely the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. So endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. Then listen to verse eight. And if you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. So the word discipline involves a conscious divestment. That's the word in your outline, a conscious divestment of all entanglements and then a determined investment of all your energies. Our text suggests that as the ancient athletes competed and when they competed, you know what they did? They discarded everything, all their clothing that would hold them back. And they ran gumnos. Gumnos, the Greek word meaning naked. Only then were they free from everything that could possibly burden them down. And so in the same way, if the believer wants to please God, he must also divest himself, herself of every habit that stands in the way of that goal and in turn invest all of his or her energy in the pursuit of obeying God. So before we get to the final point, here's a few suggestions in the area of discipline. Number one, prioritize the areas where you need to change. Be a good time right now while we're talking about this to jot down the areas where you need to change. Which one is holding you back the most? Begin there. Secondly, set realistic goals. Set realistic goals. So, in other words, to say this is the last hot fudge Sunday of my life. That's pretty unrealistic. But to say I'm going to limit myself to one of these a week. That's, that's acceptable. That's attainable. Third, remove access to temptation. You eat too many sweets or what's in your freezer. You find it difficulty watching a television program that brings sexual temptation, yet you have HBO in your home. I find it easier to say no to those voices when I know that what I want is at the grocery store and at the video store and not in my home. Fourth, be accountable. Tell someone about the struggle you're having. Wow, what a concept that is. Find a Christian brother or a Christian sister if you're a sister in Christ. Tell someone and ask them, pray for me about this. I'm, I'm wanting to grow in my relationship to Christ. I want to put this habit behind me. Tell someone. Makes it more of a, a real thing when you share it with someone. And that could be a, a professional that you share it with. And then the fourth lesson, the final lesson, to break a bad habit and begin a good one, you must be committed. With a determined effort, through the power of the Holy Spirit, spiritual victory can come. But it's not going to be easy. Because the race is long. I wish this was a sprint, but it's not. It's a marathon, the Christian life. And it's not going to happen. These habits are not going to be changed because of your determination. But because of the grace of God working through you. Giving you the determination, the, the desire, and the ability to change. Galatians 2.20 is, is one of my favorite verses. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The key to obedience 
Is the risen Christ alive in you? Even so, it's not going to be easy, which is why we're going to read verse 11 now. We didn't read verse 11 in our text, but it's our verse of the week. Hebrews 12, verse 11. Please read this out loud with me. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. You ever thought much about Judas Iscariot? He was one of the twelve disciples. He spent three years under the leadership and the mentorship of Jesus. He was sent out two by two, just like all the other disciples. I mean, they healed the sick. They cast out demons. In fact, Judas was put in charge of the financial affairs of the twelve disciples. Yet, what do we remember Judas Iscariot for? For how he finished. He didn't end well, did he? That's always a heartbreaker when you think about someone like Judas. It's not about how you begin the race. It's about how you finish. It's about how you finish. The end of the race is really all that matters. And as we say in golf, it's not how you drive. It's how you arrive. In other words, it's not how you start. It's how you finish. You can change. Your life can be different. By the grace of God, you can grow, make progress in this run, in this race that we're running. That's a long race. But Jesus is the one who's our pace setter. He's the one leading us in this race. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us because we need his help. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day. Lord Jesus, we praise you for the race that you've set before us, which is a long race. And we need, we need your grace, your amazing grace. We need to know how loved we are by you. And we thank you that you look beyond our faults and see our needs. So, Lord, I just thank you for that word today as well. And I pray for everyone in this place that wants so much to change, wants so much to grow through some of the bad habits, some of the entanglements, some of the hindrances to their Christian life. Help them, Lord. Give them the grace to prioritize those, to set goals, to to talk to a friend and say what it is and to, to remove any of those that might be a, a temptation right in front of them. I pray for your amazing grace to be at work in our hearts, Lord, that we would talk to you about these things and then talk to a brother or sister in Christ or talk to a pastor. I pray that you would help us to honor and glorify you in this long, long race as we look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Help us, Lord Jesus, as we sing to consider you. In your name I pray. Amen. And, and what we're going to sing at the close here is...